This week, FCC Chairman proposes $9.7 billion accelerated relocation payments to satellite companies. PG&E RSA with note holders approved. Unity filed answer in Windstream adversary while raising debt to prepare for a potential going concern. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Mark Fisher. And I'm Raksha Manjanad. Later this episode, Reorg's Deputy Managing Editor, Angelo Thalassinos, sits down with Vincent Indelicato, restructuring partner at Proskauer, in a brand new series. We're calling it The Professional Spotlight. It's Sunday, February 9th. Incumbent satellite companies, including Intelsat, would be eligible for up to $9.7 billion in, quote, accelerated, accelerated relocation payments under a C-band auction proposal revealed by FCC Chairman Ajit Pai on Thursday. The plan would allocate 300 megahertz of C-band spectrum for flexible use, including 5G, and a 20 megahertz, quote, guard band through a public auction which Chairman Pai proposed to take place on December 8th of this year. The accelerated relocation payments would be in addition to a reimbursement for, quote, every single reasonable cost associated with the relocation of their operations. Quote, accelerated relocation payments are designed to capture the value to auction winners of satellite operators, clearly clearing spectrum quickly, Pai said. According to the proposed order released the next day, $2.4 billion of the payment will be made available in phase one if 100 megahertz of spectrum is cleared by September of 2021, with the remaining $7.3 billion if the additional spectrum is cleared by September of 2023. Intelsat would be eligible to receive 50% of those payments according to the order. In response to Pi's proposal, Senator John Kennedy, Republican of Louisiana, co-sponsor of a bill that would cap incentive payments at $1 billion, released the following statement, quote, Unfortunately, the sum Chairman Pai suggested giving to foreign satellite companies is much too high, and it's highly unfair to those taxpayers. We shouldn't be in the business of spearheading Luxembourg bailouts when there are towns in Louisiana and across the country without access to broadband service. My colleagues and I have put a bipartisan bill on the table that would pay down our national debt, modernize public safety, and finally free rural communities from dial-up prison. Our priorities are in the right place, and I encourage the FCC to consider its proposal in light of those American priorities. On Thursday, U.S. bankruptcy judge Dennis Montali approved the PG&E debtor's entry into a restructuring support agreement with the ad hoc group of note holders and established a timeline for confirmation of the debtor's amended plan. Only one fire victim claimant, William B. Abrams, objected to the approval of the RSA, arguing that the plan proponents are, quote, here for those short-term payouts. Judge Montali told Abrams to raise his objections at confirmation and in the plan approval proceeding currently pending before the California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC. The judge also entered an interlocutory non-final order memorializing his December 30th memorandum decision, applying the federal judgment rate to a calculation of post-petition interest under the PG&E debtor's proposed plan. By entering an interlocutory order, Judge Montali effectively denied the ad hoc group of trade creditors' request at the Feb 4th hearing that he enter a final, immediately appealable order and certify it for direct review by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. 
Prior to the Thursday hearing, PG&E detailed the proposed sources and uses of funds for its reorganization. Among other changes, it calls for $9 billion in new money equity funding to be raised, down from $12 billion under the prior plan construct, and for $6 billion in, quote, temporary utility debt to be raised. This $6 billion in temporary utility debt would be in addition to the debt raised at the utility in accordance with the noteholder RSA. As previewed in the amendments to the debt commitment letters released last Friday, the amount of debt raised at the Holco would be reduced to $4.75 billion from $7 billion under the prior plan funding construct. The testimony also contemplates a post-emergence rate-neutral securitization financing application through which PG&E would seek to raise $7 billion post-emergence. The proceeds from the securitization financing would be used in part to retire the $6 billion in temporary utility debt. Unity Group filed its answer to the Windstream plaintiff's first amended complaint in the master lease arrangement adversary proceeding, asserting affirmative defenses as well as conditional counterclaims and third-party claims. Unity would prosecute these conditional claims if the bankruptcy court rules in Windstream's favor by concluding that, quote, the master lease is not a true lease and should instead be recharacterized as a financing arrangement. The filing states, Claims are asserted against Windstream Holdings and Windstream Services, along with third-party claims against more than 70 Windstream transfer subsidiaries. Some of the arguments have been previously alluded to in previous briefings and hearings. Trial in the master lease arrangement dispute is scheduled for March 2nd to March 6th. Additionally, Unity Group priced a $2.25 billion offering of 7 and 7 eighths senior secured notes due 2025, with proceeds earmarked to repay its term loan and borrowings under its revolver. The deal was upsized from an, from an original $1.75 billion and a price tight to whispers of 85 to 9%. Proceeds were used to take out Unity's term loan and partial payment of their revolver. On the island of Puerto Rico, the White House Office of Management and Budget said in a statement on Wednesday evening, that the administration of President Donald Trump, quote, strongly opposes a U.S. House of Representatives bill to provide an additional $4.7 billion in disaster relief to Puerto Rico in response to a continuing series of earthquakes that have impacted parts of the island throughout 2020 and said presidential advisors would recommend vetoing the measure in its current form. The OMB said the, quote, misguided bill would add $4.7 billion on top of all of the billions already allocated to Puerto Rico and contains restrictive provisions that would prevent administration from ensuring that the funds are well spent. The OMB also expressed opposition to the bill's Division B, which would expand the eligibility of the child tax credit to residents in Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories. The expansion would create over $15 billion in new federal subsidies through the tax code, which would, quote, add billions of dollars to the deficit and undermine efforts to put the Commonwealth on a path to fiscal self-sufficiency, the statement added. On Monday, the Puerto Rico Energy Bureau began a week of evidentiary hearings on the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's proposed Integrated Resource Plan, or IRP. The initial hearing featured updates from PREPA on the status of the grid in a wake of a series of earthquakes that have shaken the island over the past month, 
with the damaged and idled Costa Sur plant a main area of focus. PREPA officials and consultants were also questioned on, on compliance with federal air standards governing power plants called MATS or MATS and the utilities power purchase agreements with the private generators Ecoelectrica and AES. During a subsequent IRP hearing on Wednesday, PREPA officials said a three-stage process to determine Federal Emergency Management Agency funding for post-hurricane repairs and upgrades to the island's grid is on track for conclusion by the end of March. Under the current schedule set by the regulator, after the evidentiary hearings, PREB will also hold five hearings around the island between February 11th and February 25th to hear public comment, and final public comments and legal briefs are due March 2nd. Also on Monday, various parties filed reply briefs in support of the pending motions to dismiss the adversary complaints brought by fuel line lenders Cortland Capital and Solus and the Employees Retirement System of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, or SREAEE, by its Spanish initials, both of which oppose the PREPA restructuring support agreement as violative of their prior priority rights to payment as, quote, current expenses under the PREPA bond trust agreement. A hearing on the motions to dismiss the adversary proceedings is scheduled for March 4th at 8.30 a.m. ET. The PROMISA Oversight Board argued that both the fuel line loans and the past due amounts allegedly due to SREAEE do not constitute current expenses. The Oversight Board asserts, however, that even if fuel line claims and the SREAEE claims are current expenses under the 1974 trust agreement governing the PREPA bonds, the fuel line lenders, quote, admit that they must show that the bondholders agreed to have their claims subordinated to current expenses. In each instance, the Oversight Board argues that the PREPA bondholders did not agree to subordinate their claims to the claims of the fuel line lenders, or SREAEE. The Oversight Board also disputes the fuel line lenders' contention that they are third-party beneficiaries of the trust agreement, pointing out that nothing in the agreement expressly says this. Other top stories last week were, one, consortium of Simon Property Group, Brookfield, authentic brands designated Forever 21, stalking horse bitter. Two, Valaris completes internal reorganization. Rowan, relief from obligations and covenants under the indenture and notes. And three, American commercial lines to pursue prepackaged plan. Receive $690 million dip financing package from existing lenders, $200 million equity infusion. Jim's next as usual with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Raksha. Morning, all. And this is going to be one of them weeks that my mama warned me about, in that the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as the immortal bard put it, will be flying with increased ferocity, both in the form of earnings and hearings. So without any further ado, here's some highlights. And for a more comprehensive calendar, please see our weekly forward, which is released first thing every Monday morning. And this Monday, February 10th, we have first day hearing in American Commercial, motion to extend time hearing in EP Energy and earnings from Avaya, Navios, Diamond Offshore, and Pixis. Tuesday, February 11th, the Marbo McKenzie trial continues. Omnibus hearings in PG&E, bid procedures, and final dip hearing in High Ridge, and an auction for Forever 21. Earnings from Hasbro and Diebold Nixdorf. Wednesday, February 12th, omnibus hearings in Windstream and Jimboree. Confirmation hearing in PES, and also hearings in Sanchez and EP. And earnings from Teva, Antero Midstream and Resources, that one should be interesting, and Altice. 
Thursday, February 13th, Superior Energy's exchange offer expires. Windstream, there's a hearing related to the motion to continue the charter adversary hearing and an exclusivity hearing in New Katai. There's earnings from Mattel, First Quantum, and FTS. And Friday, February 14th, status conferences in EP and PHI and a stay relief hearing in Alta Mesa. And that's it for now. I had actually worked up a little bit on the best Plump Jack vintage, Plump Jack winery, being in the terroir, I'm not pronouncing that right, it's a French word meaning territory, I think, of Governor Gavin Newsom of California, who could pronounce it right. Anyways, the best Plump Jack winery vintage to pair with crawfish and other things we throw in the pot down here on the bayou. Anyways, my apologies, I wrote it down, but must have left the paper in the boat. So you're going to have to wait, assuming that's a matter of interest to you. Thank you and good luck. Back to you, Rob. Okay, and now as promised, here is Angelo Thalassinos with Vincent Indelicato, restructuring partner at Proskauer. Hello listeners, and welcome to our first professional spotlight where we sit down with advisors, investors, bankers, and other professionals and explore both their background and their business. I'm Angelo Thalassinos, Deputy Managing Editor for America's Core Credit, and I'm joined today by Vincent Indelicato, partner in the restructuring group at Proskauer Rose. Welcome, Vinny. Thank you, Angelo. Excited to join you today. Thanks so much. And to introduce Vinny, he was a 2008 graduate of the University of Michigan Law School, where he was the commencement speaker. He's risen to the ranks of partner at Proskauer, a recipient of the American Bankruptcy Institute's 40 Under 40 Award, and named an outstanding young restructuring lawyer by Turnaround and Workouts. Now, Vinny, to start us off today, tell us a bit about your path in the restructuring industry and how you became industry interested in this complex area and the intersection of law and finance. Happy to, Angelo. Thank you. So, as fate would have it, I began my career on the now ominous day of September 15, 2008, the morning that Lehman filed for bankruptcy. And while I had taken a corporate reorganization class that Martin Bedenstock taught at Michigan Law School, I really had never considered specializing in bankruptcy or restructuring. In fact, I actually started as a general corporate associate with aspirations to do M&A, which in some ways felt like a more natural fit for me given that I had spent the prior summer of 2007 in a corporate finance role in the investment banking division of Goldman Sachs. But with all of the uncertainty in the financial markets around the fall of 2008, looking back now, I think it certainly proved an inauspicious time for a young lawyer to try to find deal work because financing retrenched and so many clients put their transactions in abeyance. And so, like many, I eventually found myself as part of that generation of 2008 law school grads who had to recalibrate their trajectory to align with the new realities of the market. I think for me, sensing that, at least in the near term, I would likely find more opportunity in the restructuring area than in M&A, I decided to reach out to my former bankruptcy professor, Martin Bienenstock, to seek his advice. We ended up having a great conversation, and I met with a number of his his partners at the time, and, and ultimately, they invited me to join their group at Dewey and LaBeouf, where we had a terrific run for several years and worked on a variety of high-profile restructuring matters until the firm suffered its own Lehman moment in 2012. And just to step back, you have to remember, this was a law firm, a global firm, of some 3,000 employees with 30 offices around the world. It, it felt almost surreal that it could collapse. And I think living through that uh, as a bankruptcy lawyer uh, gave me an appreciation for the psychology that many of our clients experience when we have to help them navigate periods of distress impacting their own businesses. And I still remember vividly, we had been the last group to leave the firm. And 
it, it sort of felt like being part of the band playing the violin on the Titanic in those final moments. But really as a testament to Martin's humanity, he insisted that whatever firm ultimately wanted the group had to take all 30 of us, including administrative staff. And so I think we left Dewey on a, a Friday and started at Proskauer on a Monday in May of 2012. And we've been here now almost eight years and, and have never looked back. And uh, candidly, it's been the best decision we could have ever made. That's that's a great story. And I, I remember those times very well. Um, I started on the Monday just prior to Lehman's bankruptcy. Um, and, and those were uh, in, indeed a, a very auspicious time to start as a, as a young associate restructuring or otherwise. No, um, no question. Having grown up sort of at the same time um, and knowing, of course, that there is no typical day and everyone always asks, what's your typical day look like? Um, I'm going to ask, just give us some examples of what a day or a week or the sorts of matters that you could be working on in any given day? Sure. So look, I, I think the unpredictability and the frenetic pace of the bankruptcy practice really excites me. I think any one day really can feel like Cirque du Soleil, lots of juggling. It's an incredibly people and relationship driven practice. A lot of calls, calls with clients, calls with other advisors, calls with adversaries, uh, strategy meetings, analyzing cases, um, sitting down for negotiations, reviewing term sheets, uh, attending uh, bankruptcy court hearings. Um, a lot of our practice um, involves negotiation and resolution around the conference room. When that fails, uh, we often have to litigate in a courtroom. Uh, and so I think as you become more senior, you start to appreciate that you manage a team uh, and you have to constantly reassess uh, the game board of a case, um, which itself could feel like three-dimensional chess. And drive forward a strategy, which itself can change rapidly, but I think simultaneously ensure that all of the trains run on time and all of the moving parts that ultimately come together through the contributions of other people on the team reflect that strategy. And I often tell people one of the attributes of the bankruptcy practice that distinguishes it from other areas of corporate law is I think the unique extent to which it draws upon expertise uh, from specialties and disciplines outside of, of bankruptcy and restructuring. And so in as much as we're constantly working within the bankruptcy and restructuring practice, we're also equally uh, collaborating with our colleagues in other areas across the firm, whether that be uh, benefits, tax, labor, uh, et cetera. And so in that respect, uh, it's an all-encompassing uh, uh, mission. When I reflect on my early days, I often tell people, you start as a junior associate in the practice, and you really have to think of it as an apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. And you need to approach it, That's a good way to put it. With, with that mentality. Um, you are building a foundation and honing a craft and, and in the early days, setting out to ultimately become an expert in a very, very technical area of the law. And so you're learning the bankruptcy code, uh, researching cases, uh, understanding the jurisprudence, drafting pleadings, attending hearings, doing a lot of watching and listening, and really trying to, to cement that scaffolding upon which you will build uh, throughout your career. I think over time, you begin to focus as you uh, rise up uh, more on, on client service 
and becoming a trusted advisor, which uh, frankly introduces an entirely different set of pressures and responsibilities. You get that proverbial call from the client at two o'clock in the morning. You go to court to argue that motion um, with the client listening on the telephone or sitting in the gallery watching your every move. But I also think that you have to find time to teach the next generation so that the model continues to work. And more importantly, the junior people on the team feel that they have the potential to make a real impact on the deal or the case. And they're not just mindlessly pushing paper. I think it's so important, Angelo, to give young associates the opportunity to engage with clients, lead conference calls, present in court, write articles, really create their own profile and identity, which hopefully will continue to flourish throughout their careers. And then I think ultimately that evolution culminates with a focus on more strategic initiatives. So all of the juggling, you're constantly uh, overseeing a matter, uh, focusing on client service, but you're still working with the firm on strategic initiatives that will enable the practice to grow. And you're building a business and you're cultivating new clients, you're expanding existing client relationships. And and when you see that coalesce, it, it really can can be incredibly rewarding. And I suspect that's a refreshing take for young associates as, as well. I, I certainly think so. When, when they have that experience, it, it makes them feel that they're, they're making a very meaningful contribution to, to the effort. And so let's, let's expand on that a little bit. And you, you talked about your early days as an associate a, a bit. Um, is there any advice that you're provided or any wisdom that's really stuck with you or resonated um, that that you you would pass along or you do pass along to younger associates? So I've been very fortunate to have found extraordinary mentors at different points in my career. I I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to find people to guide and nurture your development. And I certainly draw upon lessons from each of of the mentors that I've found every day in my practice. And so I I, I look back, um, you know, my early 20s working for the late John Whitehead, former CEO of Goldman Sachs, at a time when he had served as chairman of the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation, which had been, if you recall, the state entity created to oversee the historic uh, rebuilding and revitalization of uh, the World Trade Center site, a project fraught with uh, divergent opinions and and, and at times um, very contentious uh, stakeholders and and John had this really magical ability to bring people together and build consensus with virtue and integrity and he always emphasized the importance of listening and I think a little bit about that in the face of recognizing that one of the really exciting uh, uh, attributes or, or areas of bankruptcy, for me at least, is that it's an area of law, unlike some other areas, where lawyers can really get involved and drive a process forward uh, and really play an active role. And I think it's, it's very easy, uh, especially in the bankruptcy area, where inherently someone feels that they're getting the short end of the stick of and, and tensions are high, to come into a situation as the attorney and, f- and succumb or capitulate to the temptation of pounding the table or making a declaration of war. And sometimes you have to assert your rights and, and, and the circumstances uh, require that. 
But I found that if you try to work with your adversaries and understand um, their objectives and their clients' objectives and you just listen a little bit, uh, that could portend to a, a consensual restructuring outcome uh, or resolution at the end of the process. You know, after working with John, I had the um, uh, privilege to spend several years on Capitol Hill in Washington as the special assistant to uh, United States Senator Chuck Schumer. And as anyone who's gone through that office will attest, um, you know, Chuck has what we call the Schumer method, and that's something I draw upon a lot in, 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 in my profession every day. And to distill it to its sort of uh, atomic essence, Chuck has a rigor, I think, and an intensity uh, and just an indefatigable force of nature that he brings to everything that he does. Uh, and so watching him um, with just you know sheer force of nature drive a process forward, and, and again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in, in the bankruptcy area where you really have to try to, to, to move a case forward, maintain momentum, uh, bring people together, um, that method, I think, is something that I, that I consider every day. And then more recently, I think... I think having the tutelage of, of someone like Martin Bienenstock, uh, my now partner, uh, who was at the very beginning my uh, professor in law school, who really taught me the bankruptcy practice and I think um, introduced me to the demands of client service, how to meet those demands. And I think the recognition that clients expect solutions that often require creativity and innovation and that in order to distinguish yourself and to appeal to clients and to incent clients to want to work with you, you have to bring something to the table. And I, I can tell you vividly, and you could you know, survey any number of, of my, my partners and colleagues who have worked with Martin, they will tell you, even at the earliest stages of first, second year uh, associate, when you go to a meeting, uh, he will turn to you and say, what are your, what are your ideas? Um, we, need, we need creative ideas. We need innovative ideas. And, and I think in a, in a practice where we're serving very sophisticated clients, they have an expectation of excellence. And that's something that you have to bring with you every day to every situation. So that, and we take very seriously. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So let's let's dive into that a little bit more. Um, and sort of that's a good segue to, to the next um, topic is looking at distress now and, and restructuring. Are there any trends in the macro environment and the micro environment um, sort of in your seat and your role? What, what things are you seeing out there? So, you know, it's funny. People say that if you really want to understand the financial markets, you ought to read Sigmund Freud and, and not Adam Smith. And so think about the psychology of the macroeconomic environment today. We're in the 12th inning of an economic recovery with emergency monetary and fiscal policy, notwithstanding the state of emergency that gripped the financial markets in 2008 has largely abated. Stocks have soared, employment numbers strong, interest rates it's still historically low. So I think the convergence of strong credit markets and the continued buoyancy of investor sentiment has, on balance, allowed most borrowers approaching a maturity wall to refinance. 
I think as a result of, of, of those market conditions, we've seen very little what I would call dedicated distress. I mean, sure, okay. um, there has been uh, activity in pockets of different industries, energy, healthcare. Uh, we all know too well the story of the retail apocalypse, um, brick and mortar, anything with exposure to uh, Amazon. And, you know, you take a step back, these situations, um, by and large, I think, have not uh, garnered the conviction and excitement of distressed debt investors because fundamentally when the dust settles and you peel back the onion, there really is not a, an attractive operating business to reorganize around. And so you look at just some of the recent retail situations where 503B9 claimants, right, severely impaired, landlords now bidding for tenant stores just to keep them open. Admin claimants being impaired. No question. And so really when you think about dedicated distress, I, I think when you, you look at the larger cases where funds are devoting capital, they're really more what I would describe as idiosyncratic filings. You look at the PG&Es of the world, uh, some of the sovereign trades. I think on a micro level, um, this has created a phenomenon that I like to call the hunt for yield, which I think has manifested itself in two ways. First, I think there's been an unprecedented willingness to finance esoteric trades, um, everything from uh, yellow taxi cab medallions to subrogation claims to uh, sovereign uh, debt, and and certainly the um, the, the the subject is your uh, litigation funding. Mm-hmm. Um, second. Within the context of more traditional distressed debt investing, when you're dissecting the behavior of investors in the Chapter 11 cases that we have uh, been monitoring, it's what I call feast or famine. If you're a debt holder today in a Chapter 11 case and you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. And so I look back to the life cycle of many of the large cases that I cut my teeth on with Martin, you know, 10 plus years ago. And in that sense, it felt like people were fighting for their slice of the pie. It was how, how big of a slice can, can they, they, they negotiate. I think in today's environment, the focus has become more of how can I skip the line? And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean it in the sense that Holders are angling for creative ways to use the bankruptcy code um, and other uh, irregularities, whether it be idiosyncratic holders like CLOs or BDCs who have limitations as to the kinds of currency they can take back in a restructuring or their ability to hold um, certain rated paper to um, non-pro-rata share transactions, uh, rights offerings. And I think we're seeing more and more, not just inter-creditor conflict, senior versus junior, but what I call intra-creditor warfare, where you have majority uh, and minority lender skirmishes around a lot of these issues. Have you seen that pre-petition and post-petition? You see it pre-petition in... uh, the, the formulation of uh, the plant support agreement or the restructuring support agreement, um, everyone appears aligned in the sense that they're similarly situated and they're in agreement to, for example, convert their debt to equity. 
the question becomes who controls the pen on the definitive documentation around, um, you know, equity rights, governance rights, uh, et cetera. And because so many of the companies that have become candidates for restructuring transactions today have an unprecedented need for capital, if you have uh, dry powder and, and you have size, I think you can capitalize on um, some of the asymmetries presented by idiosyncratic holders who, for various reasons, just can't compete. When I think of themes that we would continue to, 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 to follow in, in 2020, uh, without question, I think sponsors have more resiliency and sophistication than ever before and have been um, more and more intent on and I think less afraid to leverage the flexibility afforded by uh, CovLoose and CovLite documentation. And I know your um, colleagues have done a nice job uh, dissecting what many in the uh, industry have called liability management trades, and we expect those to continue. Um, I think on the creditor side, uh, there's a, a renewed focus on what I would call the need for speed. Um, we've seen the ultra-fast prepack, SunGuard, and Full Beauty last year, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Because funds are so focused on maximizing returns and IRR, they're naturally incented to uh, try to, to, to accelerate the, the, the timeline and, and speed of a Chapter 11 case. And so I think by the time a case files for Chapter 11 today, in contrast to maybe you know 10 plus years ago, we're seeing a lot of cases filed in either an ultra-fast prepackaged form or pre-negotiated form, which also, by the way, um, presents a, an impediment to the ability for unsecured creditors to, to potentially uh, become active in the case through the formation of a committee. And so I think that will continue. I think that um, holders, creditors are more focused on post-reorganization, governance rights, uh, the ability to appoint independent directors, extracting control through uh, governance, and I think litigation trust will, will continue to persist. Uh, as a vertical, I think private credit restructuring has been a very active and will continue to become very active in 2020, uh, private credit, direct lenders, et cetera, and we're spending a lot of time in that space. Okay, that, that's interesting, and, and you touched upon this a little bit. But um, why don't we dive into the the business of law firms? Um, and, and you've been doing this for uh, nearly 12 years now. Um, what changes have you seen um, in those 12 years? Uh, and obviously, as we all know, um, restructuring fees make headlines once in a while. Um, what can you tell us about that? So, look, I, I think that overall, the, 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 the legal business, and I, and I offer this perspective as a restructuring lawyer, is increasingly more competitive today. Uh, and in part, I think, you know, as a restructuring professional, I, I would recognize, you know, reorg research, I think, shattered the informational asymmetry that existed, you know, a decade ago. And we, you mentioned earlier, how did the the, the, the responsibilities of a lawyer sort of change or evolve over time. I remember as a junior associate spending an inordinate amount of time summarizing dockets and monitoring dockets and clicking on PACER and, and sending a, a summary out to the client. Um, that's largely from a bygone era now. I think that uh, people are consuming uh, information more rapidly. I think that, you know, Reorg has uh, democratized um, the, you know, the Chapter 11 landscape. And I think as a result, um, it's intensified competition among professionals because everyone has, I think, a, those sort of 
the same uh, information and, uh, and, and same visibility into uh, case outlooks and, and situational analysis. And um, I think that uh, you, you really have to um, do your homework uh, well in advance um, to, to, to get out in front and try to organize creditor groups and, and find potential debtor candidates. Um, as far as expense, I think, again, because, you know, the landscape is so dominated now by hedge funds who are focused on, on rates of return, I think there's a thirst for speed, and, and I think that will continue. Certainly. Yeah, and, and you're right. We've, we've seen that in a number of cases, um, not only in 2019, but even earlier. Um, and so before we wrap up, we like to ask our guests um, to tell us about a recent experience, movie, show, or book uh, you would recommend to our listeners and why. Sure. So I'll, I'll offer a book and I'll offer a film. So right. we'll start with the with the book. So I, I majored, full disclaimer, I majored in English and I still uh, do quite a bit of reading uh, outside of work. And so every year I like to send clients a book that resonated with me. And, and this year I selected a book about Jim Simons and uh, Renaissance Technologies, a hedge fund that, that he founded um, many years ago. Uh, the book is titled The Man Who Solved the Market. Uh, it's written by a Wall Street Journal writer. And if you're not familiar with the story, Jim Simons was a professor at Stony Brook University yeah, in the mathematics right. department, uh, made a, a, a gamble to leave academia to start a fund, and after a number of false starts, uh, had uh, resounding success. I think since 1988, uh, Renaissance's signature medallion fund has generated average annual returns of 66%, and I think the firm has recorded trading gains in excess of $100 billion. And I think, you know, you contrast that with uh, an all too uh, familiar story uh, in today's environment where it feels that with each passing day, we read another headline of, about a, a, a major hedge fund that's decided to call it quits, or uh, more generally speaking, hedge funds uh, underperforming relative to in industry benchmarks. And so I think you know Jim Simon's story is such a fascinating and instructive one. As yeah. far as, as film, um, I, I found the, uh, the, the, the film on Netflix uh, called The Two Popes, just an absolutely remarkable story about friendship uh, and people, and, and that's one that I would highly recommend. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, and Vinny, thank you for joining us for our first professional spotlight on the podcast. And listeners, as always, stay tuned to Reorg. Thanks, Angelo. And thank you for tuning in to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Mark Fisher, and this has been The Week in Reorg. 